In case you haven't heard, we are in the middle of the information age. Uh, if you don't know what that means, you might just look that phrase up. Everything, or so it seems, can be accessed online, from medical records to legal opinions, from academic scholarship to celebrity gossip, whatever you're looking for. You can, with a few clicks on your computer and even on your telephone, you can access all this information. Now, be careful, be careful. So I asked Google this morning. So we have Google Home all over our house. So I asked Google this morning, how does Wikipedia work? All right, which she was very newsy about Wikipedia. In fact, she said, well, according to Wikipedia, okay, so, but what's interesting about this, um, when, I, when I teach classes at the school, and I maybe teach one a year now, but, but um, it's interesting to me, a, a student will get dinged if they turn in a research paper and all their research is done on Wikipedia. Why is that? Why would I be so concerned about that? Anybody know? It's Wikipedia is all written by volunteers. Uh, uh, Interestingly, and and anyone can edit or change what is in Wikipedia. So I'll look at it, and then occasionally I'll think, "Eh," you know, you know, uh, the War of 1812 was somewhere in the early 1800s. It wasn't in the 1900s, okay? I mean, there is such a thing as historical revisionism, all right? And, and so you can read some of this stuff and, and realize, uh, somebody has put some opinion in there. Now, if I really want to know the truth, I call Bill Reeves because he's smart. And uh, uh, especially on anything scientific or creation, that's my man right back there. Intelligent design. Sorry. Sorry, intelligent design. That's right. Um, that, see, he's even corrected that. My Wikipedia got corrected right there. So isn't it interesting uh, to me, but while we're glutted with information, it's right to ask exactly what are we doing with all that? That more information than we've ever had, in spite of all the generalized and specialized information in our crazy world, Are we any wiser as a society? I'm afraid that's a rhetorical question. Because I don't think we're any wiser. When I read the newspaper and see some of the decisions that that people make, that, you know, we make, that whatever. When I even look at my own life, I think, am I any wiser just because I got a lot more info? And that question kind of answers itself. James is going to deal with this just a little bit. Now, there may be as many as five different Jameses, is that a word, Jameses in the New Testament, okay? So James identifies himself here in verse one, we'll get to that in just a minute, as James, but he doesn't say James who. So we'll deal with that just a little bit. Um, uh, We really believe that it was written by James who is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, why would I say he's his half-brother? God was his father. Joseph would be James' father. But they shared a mother in Mary, okay? 
Um, that's kind of what tradition will tell us. And generally, that's kind of what we thought. James and Jesus grew up in a pretty large family, uh, along with the other brothers of Jesus. James didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be during Jesus' lifetime. But if you read places like Acts 1.14, you realize James and the other members of the family were included in those after the resurrection who were gathered as the disciples of Christ, as the church. So we know at some point that changed. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you realize that one of the things that Paul tells us happened is that Jesus made a personal post-resurrection appearance to James himself. Wouldn't you love to see a videotape of that? Hey, little, there you go. Hey, little Bubba, it's me. You know, uh, what do you think now? You know, I, you know, I don't know. But I know that James was convinced enough to become a part of that group in Acts 1. And by Acts 15, he's become the leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, one of the guys I really love to read on whatever subject he writes on and preaches on is uh, Chuck Swindoll. Chuck will give a little bit of a detail in some of his background work on James. He says that tradition has it, and I don't know how you say this in Aramaic, Aramaic Hebrew or Greek, but that James was such a person of prayer and faith by the time... Um, Later in his life, he became known as Old Camel Knees because his knees were swollen from spending time on them in prayer. You know what? That's a kind of guy I want to listen to, you know? I've got a few of those in my life, some of you in this room, that just I know you're connected with God. That was James by the time he writes this book. Now, uh, the chronology isn't completely clear, but... Perhaps by the mid-40s of the first century, um, uh, James had become a leader in the Jerusalem church. And the Jerusalem church wasn't any more important than the other churches, except for it had become kind of the mother church of all other churches uh, because the church expanded from Jerusalem. It was more than, than just one other congregation among many, and James was kind of the de facto leader of that. Um, listen to what the, um, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said about James. This is what he said. Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus, this, uh, he wrote this in about uh, the 50s, okay? Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus, sent Albinus into Judea as procurator, Albinus was but upon the road, so the high priest Ananus assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. We think that would have been in A.D. 62, thereabout, when James was stoned, martyred, now for his faith, in his half-brother Jesus as the Messiah. So we know that the book had to have been written prior to 62 or so. 
Um, and uh, we think it was written sometime in the 50s, and therefore it becomes one of the very earliest of the New Testament documents, probably written from Jerusalem, and we'll see who it was written to. So let's, let's read a little bit and kind of get into this. Uh, Steve Blair, I, hear, I see you over there. And they tell me even online we can hear you a little bit. So speak out and read the first four verses. Would you do that? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, I'm going to ask somebody to read 1 Peter 1, the first two verses, and look at it because it's got a bunch of kind of big names in there. It's got places in there. But somebody, will, realizing that nobody's going to fault you, Laura, we're none of us going to fault you if you get any of those big words wrong. They're all places, okay? We're going to look at that in just a minute. So um, he writes to a dispersion of believers, and a dispersion of Jews. So it's probably going to write to Jewish believers that have been spread be spread out throughout kind of the known world because of the kind of persecution that James himself eventually faced. Okay? It all kind of began under Stephen. Now Peter's going to talk about it also in the beginning of his book. Uh, Laura, you mind to read the first two verses of, of 1 Peter? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you give her a hand? She knocked that right up. Thank you, Laura. Okay, so all those places were places that people probably from Jerusalem, even on the day of Pentecost, spread unto, all right? James is writing to those same kind of Jewish believers that have kind of been spread out over the world, uh, okay? And also to Jerusalem believers, okay? So we kind of get this thought here uh, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, he says, and brings them greetings. Now, I think it's interesting. I, I left the question on your outline. What's surprising about the way that James identifies himself? It's what he didn't say. It is what he didn't say, Cindy. It's, I'm a, I'm a servant, I'm a slave, you could argue, of, um, he's, he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's a formula. That's a formula, Lord Jesus Christ. They began to use it in the first century to identify this Jesus among all the others. They didn't use Jesus of Nazareth. They used, you and I might use. They would say the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's uh, the uh, Greek word for the Messiah. So James here is fully identifying with Jesus, but he doesn't name drop. My brother. He says, I'm his servant. I'm not his brother. He doesn't say that anywhere 
in this text. Isn't, have you fa- ever met somebody who was the uh, family member of somebody really, really famous? Could you argue that there's been nobody ever more famous than this? That my guess is, okay, my guess is if you met Larry Mantle, he's going to say, uh, yeah, Mickey was my brother. Have you ever met him, Paul? He's grew up around here. But my understanding is he would probably say, oh, yeah, okay. All right, it was claim to fame. I mean, he was probably a great athlete on his own. Uh, this is an interesting one. So my guess is if he knows what he's doing, I'm not sure he does, but if he knows what he's doing, Barry Bonds would introduce himself as Bobby was my dad. That could be that Bobby at some point said, Barry's my son. Okay? All right, so you kind of get the idea. Can you tell him kind of what a baseball kick today? All right? But James doesn't anywhere say, Cindy, I love the way you said it. It's what he doesn't say that's intriguing. I'm James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say that. He said, I'm a servant of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I find that pretty intriguing. By the way, can you imagine a greater shadow to have lived under than this one? Now, so in verse 2, uh, he's going to say something here that's really important to us, uh, I think especially today in what we're dealing with. James is assuming that his readers will be tested, all right? Uh, He's assuming testing. In my Bible, it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I think the NIV says whenever, okay? That's implying that don't expect to get through this life without some kind of trial. And he's certainly talking to about it to those who are dispersed throughout all those places that Laura read about a little, little bit ago, throughout the known world, who believe. But I think uh, uh, by extension, you and I can take this on too. Don't expect, if you're going to follow Jesus, to get through this life without some trials. And I th- what I think is wonderful about this is that Jesus didn't lie to you about that. He didn't lie to the disciples about it. He won't lie to you about it. I talked to a good friend a couple weeks ago who was going through yet another trial. And I, he was a guy that, that he and I got together for about a year over coffee when he was yet not a believer. And we just, I, uh, Bill, I just kept doing apologetic after apologetic after apologetic. Uh, mainly just saying, well, what about this? Or have you thought about this? Read this and tell me what you think of that. And at the end of a year or so, he came to faith, kind of kicking and screaming, came to faith. He called me the night that he crossed that line. He had been, uh, he had been, frying some turkeys in the fryer out back. And he dropped a frozen turkey in a hot fryer. Lost every hair off his face. He wrecked his car that day. 
This is the day he crossed the line of faith in Jesus Christ. And he said to me, okay, what did you get me into? <laughs> you know? Okay, Jesus didn't lie to you about this, and I don't think I did either, partner. Consider it joy. But if you watched, by the way, uh, Congressman John Lewis's service, if you watched the portion of that that uh, President Obama led, he started right here. Consider it all joy. You remember that? He was talking about a, uh, Lewis being a man of joy. And he started with this passage right here, uh, which was really, really uh, important, I think, and poignant. Now, so the idea here is, I think, um, um, the word here, he says, when you face, or the, in my Bible it says encounter various trials. What's the word in your Bible? Face. That word is a really interesting word that implies suddenness. Uh, in in uh, other places, uh, it, it's even, uh, where this word is used, it, it's even richer. Um, so, even in the book of James, he's going to talk about different kinds of trials. Um, um, at a minimum, those related to personal financial status, he's going to talk about that in, in 1.9 and 27 and 2.15 and 2.16. He's going to talk about the uh, trial of favoritism in chapter 2. He's going to talk about economic injustice. We hear that talked about a lot, also in chapter 2. He's going to talk about exploitation in chapter 5. And all these categories kind of overlap. So he's going to deal with lots of different kinds of trials. But when you say, when you hear him say, when you face trials, when you encounter trials, it's as if it just came on you. I think about all the things I was working on on March 9th that now seem to be a waste of time. You know? Because many of those things can't even do, right? And it'll be a while before we can. Suddenly, you know, we have this encounter. Suddenly, we begin to encounter all kinds of trials. So he's going to say, I love the way he starts verse 2, consider it all joy. If I'm reading that in the first century, I want to say, give me a break, James. I kind of want to say that in 2020. What do you mean? And he's going on to, to teach about it, which is really, really good. James is assuming his readers will be tested in some way to some degree. Now, verse 3. There is a bigger picture than the troubles faced in any particular moment. We have a very sharp um, CFO at our place. She is a, um, uh, she's an accountant's accountant and a CPA and she inspires me every time I have to ask her a question because she always answers it so well and completely and can put her finger on info that I've just forgotten. Mickey will send us, um, in leadership, she'll send us a report week by week that's kind of a cash report on how we're doing that she calls 
the big picture report. It helps us to see how we're doing really. You know what I mean? You know, there's, you can make figures say whatever you want them to say. This is uh, kind of this big picture report. So the, the idea here is, is what, we really, what we're really dealing with. So um, what does it mean that you and I are looking for the big picture? Unpack that for us a little bit. I'll try to repeat it, some of these answers online. What does it mean? What does it mean that we need the big picture? Okay, long-term, not just what I'm seeing, not just the surface, but long-term. What else? The 35,000-foot view, not, the, not just, uh, you know, navel-gazing. Laura? So if I'm not careful, I'm going to see just the things in front of me and forget the long term, Uh, the eternal picture, maybe, even at that point. That's good, Laura. So the idea here is that James is saying uh, trials um, are all part of the picture, but don't miss the picture, okay? Okay. Let's go to Matthew 13. See what Jesus has to say about this. You got to figure maybe James learned some things from his older brother, right? I want us to go to Matthew 13, and I'm going to start at verse 20, okay? This is in the middle of the parable of the sower as he's explaining what he was talking about. By the way, I think it's wonderful because uh, this is so me, he would tell these wonderful parables and the disciples are all kind of, what? And so he explained. So that's the second part of, the, uh, of this chapter. Verse 20, the one on whom seed was uh, sowed on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but, his own, but it's only temporary And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Sound like our world a little? Okay, so the idea here is, I think, trials don't make you mature. We're all going to have those. I look at Joe Jones, who, how many years ago, had to deal with a brain tumor. It's it's not the trial that makes you mature. Bill, some of the things you and I have talked about over the years, it's not those trials that that grow you up. It's perseverance in that trial that makes you mature. It's how you exercise faith in the middle of that trial that makes you mature. So, that's the context that he's going to deal with here as he says, count it all joy. The desired result of this time 
And I'm going to say, even this time that we're living in, the desired result, if God's going to put it, if God's going to help us get through this, his desired result will be maturity in your life, some kind of spiritual maturity. He wants you to be, if you look at verse 4, he wants you to be perfect and complete. Complete as you were made to be is what he's interested in most. Um, we had um, Henry Cloud here a couple years back, and I sat in my seat in the balcony and listened to him talk about something that I thought, now I get it. Because uh, I, what I remember, this guy that wrote one of the two writers of the Boundaries books, and uh, he's written so many. And I bought the book that day that he was referencing. He had, he had just written a book uh, on leadership. And what I realize is that many of us, whether we would admit it or not, now I, have a, I had a tendency in school to take tests pretty well. I, I studied fairly well, but even when I wasn't completely prepared, I had a sense that I took tests pretty well. But that's not the norm. I think a lot of us have what is known as test anxiety. Anybody got that? Okay, okay. So uh, Cindy's raising her hand. Laura's raising her hand. Uh, you ever have, so it means I've studied, I've prepared, but I get so, you know, wrapped up in the moment, worried about the moment, that I, I don't even read the questions right. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't tell you what I know and what I've prepared for because I'm just so worried about it all. That's called test anxiety. What, what uh, uh, Dr. Cloud had to say on this particular day, I wrote it in, in, in my words, what I remember. Stress makes me stupid. I think he said nearly those words. So if I go into a meeting and you immediately lower the boom on me about something, all of a sudden, I can't remember the stuff that I was going to tell you that were good about what's going on. Because I'm suddenly under stress, and I just forget. I, it literally, uh, emotional stress can make us dumber <laughs> than we really are. Um, this anxiety can cause poor performance so that the results of the test don't indicate somebody's actual knowledge of or skill in what they're doing. The fear of failure can be overwhelming. So try this. Look back to a spiritual challenge that you overcame years ago and look at how far you've come. Instead of getting stuck in this moment and all the trials, all the tests of it, look back a bit five years, 10 years, 25 years. Lord, how'd we get through that? Now, I realize we're in an unprecedented day. I'm an old man, and I feel older now than I've ever felt. But I've never seen anything like this. But I do remember there were times in my past when I didn't think I could get through that either. And he led me through it. Lord, remind me how we got through that. Uh, a few years back, Ron and I spent part of a spring break in Fort Worth where, you, where the Burlesons spent a lot of good time. I spent three and a half of the hardest years of my life in Fort Worth. 
in seminary. I got there and realized I knew nothing. Left there thinking, okay, if I can accomplish this, maybe I can accomplish something else. But we drove by after dinner one night. We drove by a little house where we lived in those days. And I began to puddle in tears because it was so hard and God was so faithful. You know? Baby, how did we get through that? Putting baloney on a credit card to get, you know, to feed two little kids. How'd we get through that? We did. Because God is faithful and He's good. Okay, I'm going to get preachy. I better move on. Let's go to verse 5. Steve, can I come back to you and have you read 5 down through 8? If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generous, generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. <laughs> wow. Now, there, verse 5, I, I think has, there, verse 5 and verse 6 both. Um, no, man, i got to make sure. No, verse 5 and, uh, and another verse that we're going to get to in a minute begin the same way. It begins with this little connecting word, but. Okay? Uh, I, I think it's interesting. Um, the word but connects verse 4 and verse 5. Okay? If verse 4 ends with, God wants you to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. But if you lack wisdom, okay, so it begins, so they're connected that way, all right? Now, um, uh, what is talked about in verse 5, I've, I've come to believe, and by the way, let me fill in your blank here. Um, the wisdom that's needed this wisdom is needed to come through, the, this kind of wisdom is talking about in verse five, is needed to come through the trials of life in a way that leads to spiritual maturity. Remember, that's his desire for you, is that you grow up, that you be mature, that you be complete in every way in him. And so, uh, if, if that's the desire, then I think what is being said here is that more then some kind of situational wisdom is needed. Now, I love being around people who have situational wisdom. They, they've seen this before. This is not my first rodeo. So I, I'm going um, to go to that person and say, what did you do when you encountered this? That, that's great, um, great knowledge to have. That is what you and I might call situational wisdom, all right? But what is called for here is not situational wisdom. It's divine wisdom. Divine wisdom. So here's the principle I want to give you on this. I'm probably, by the way, not going to finish this outline today. We'll, we'll get back to it next week. You notice here in verse 5, he says God is generous. Uh, if you'll do a little research project, maybe as, you, as you're listening to uh, the pre-service music in church today, go to Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2, and read uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6 from Proverbs 2, because it's going to say the same thing, that God is wise and God is generous. So, 
God is generous. Pray. He says, you need, you need more wisdom than you feel like you've got to get through COVID-19. And add to it racial unrest and hurricanes in the east and murder hornets. You know, all that stuff we're dealing with. Yeah. Have you seen the murder hornet yet? I, you know, I, I hope I haven't seen any of them. You need, if you need, he said, you need wisdom to get through this? God says, ask me. God does not say, go to social media. <laughs> if you're there, that's okay. God does not say, go to Wikipedia. God says, if you need wisdom, he said, I am really generous with that stuff. He says it in Proverbs 2. He says it here in James 1. If you need the kind of wisdom that you're going to need to get through this day, pray about it. Ask me about it. I'm generous. And he'll continue to say, and we'll, we'll cut this off in just a minute, Asking while doubting is a very immature uh, approach here. Ask in faith believing. It, when I first asked Rhonda out, I did not go to her and say, you wouldn't want to go out with me, would you? <laughs> I don't think that would have been all that effective. I, I was way over my head as it was, you know. I had to go to her with some kind of confidence and say, I'd like to get to know you better. Let's, let's, can we get together? When I go to God, I, I don't need to go to God saying, Lord, you wouldn't want to give me some wisdom in this tough time, would you? <laughs> Ask in faith. Don't doubt. He talks about a boat being tossed in, uh, you know, on Miami Beach yesterday here. That's the image. Approaching it without godly faith is just immature, he says. And then in verse 7 and 8, he's going to say, don't even try to conform to the world while trying to serve God in a time of trial. It's just impossible. Don't try to serve God and fit the world's mold during a time of trial, he's just going to say, don't even, don't even attempt it. It's impossible here. Double-minded, he's going to call it in, in chapter 4, verse 8. Indecisiveness. Let me, let me end with, um, I've been reading the book of Joshua. I finished it, actually, my devotions this morning. But listen to what Joshua says. He, Joshua comes to the end of his life. He says, I'm an old man, I'm done. Listen to what, I'm, I'm going to be in chapter 23. So this is the next to the last chapter. You are, verse 8, you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God 
And I'm going to end with the first just three or four words of verse 2. For if you ever go back. (laughs) And he finishes that statement. Don't go back. Don't go back to an old stinking way of thinking. He's generous. Ask him to help you get through these tough days. We're going to talk about the implications of that uh, on money and all kinds of things next week as we kind of work our way on through chapter one. But I'm just going to say it to you again. James, Joshua, both of them talk about the peril of trying to live in this world and navigate a time of trial. And he's saying, you're not going to get through it if you're trying to keep a foot in both worlds. Okay, that's what I got. I hope you have a good Sunday. I'm going to put my uh, little mask back on, go to church. And uh, great to see you all. Bless you. Be safe. Thank you, buddy.